When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. What if the vast majority of hyper-growth tech unicorns emerging from Silicon Valley aren't really technology or innovation companies? What if they're really highly politicized zero-sum enterprises? If that's true, financial engineering may be being confused with actual innovation. Probably because real innovation is much harder and riskier than most investors are prepared to acknowledge. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Isabella Kaminska. AJ Royan is not your ordinary venture capitalist. The Indian-born Canadian, who is co-founder, along with Peter Thiel of the $1 billion-plus venture capital firm Mithril Capital, recently became a Texan in his search for the next frontier. This after spending over a decade in San Francisco. Why? Because in his opinion, San Francisco just isn't the sort of place that's interested in cultivating so-called unleveraged deflationary growth. Some say Royanne, as a result of his philosophy, is deploying capital too slowly. He says it's everyone else who is investing too fast. We spoke to him about what drives his investing style. Here's Royanne. I am an Indian-born Canadian who is now Texan. Um, so it's been an interesting journey. I, I was born in India, grew up in Abu Dhabi and Canada. Uh, ended up going to Yale University in the States for my undergraduate studies. And then um, after a brief stint in Canada, decided that um, I'd like to try my hand at investing and, and building companies. And that journey took me to um, San Francisco. And um, it's been uh, a decade and a half long career in that space. Um, what was clear somewhere along the way was the the world that I wanted to live in would be a world that has lots of, I would say, deflationary growth, where things get cheaper um, and better over time for and more accessible to more people. That's a good world. More choice, more things that are more accessible. And I figured the best way to try and make that happen is to build an investment firm focused on that whole idea. And that's what Mithril is. A couple of years ago, uh, you know, Silicon Valley evolved into what it's become, which is uh, a very large company town. I decided to move once again from Silicon Valley to Texas this time, middle of the country, in perhaps what has been a lifelong story of trying to find where the next frontier is, uh, both, uh, both in terms of investing and 
you know, frankly, where one lives. So that's the brief history. You just referenced now deflationary growth, and I'm not an economist, but I think most economists um, would would be a bit confused by that term. Um, I mean, I know what you mean, but it's not an official term. Um, how did you come upon sort of talking about deflationary growth? Where does the term come from? When I talk about deflationary growth, what I mean is an exogenous environment where um, because of increased productivity, because of uh, advances in technology that lead to these increases in productivity, more of us have access to more goods and services that we need on more affordable terms with as, as few negative externalities as possible. And I know that I sound utopian when I say this, but I think it is doable. Um, there are ways in which we've tried to solve for this as a society, because um, it's, a, it's a worthy goal, but I think we've come short. Uh, one way in which we've tried to do this is 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 basically cost deflation through quote unquote globalization, right? So let's have folks in countries with lower cost of labor um, manufacture things for people who live in the West, and that works until it stops working. Until the mean wage in China or Vietnam re reaches a point, or Mexico reaches a point where it's no longer competitive to to play that game, and then you hit some kind of equilibrium where that source of, um, of, of deflationary growth goes away. So it's not really sustainable, and, and therefore I, I find myself less interested in it. Um, so the, the question is, what is sustainable, what is durable and, and scalable, and, and, and allows people to do more with less, I guess, that's the real question. So, so that's what I mean by deflationary growth. And to do that, I think you have to look for sources of non-financial um, leverage. If you look at the history of the last 30, 35 years, um, maybe since the mid 80s, um, it's been this, this period that from the outside looks absolutely Elysian, but from the inside is less lubrious. So what do I mean by that? I mean, from the outside, the global economy has grown quite a bit. Um, we seem to have had periods of sustained peace. Um, in other words, there's been lots of conflict, but there haven't been world wars or you know, these, these massive cataclysmic wars that, that characterize the first half of the 20th century. So it feels like things are great. And it feels like you know the Iron Curtain fell down, and so the rest of the world joined uh, the West, and now we're all in this happy, singular global economy. The reality is that we've had massive financial leverage that has fueled the growth. We've had a significant amount of suppression of natural volatility, because I think the world is analog. When I say analog, I mean it goes in waves. Everything travels in waves. And we don't like waves. We like to we like these smooth lines, you know, as a society. So we've tried very hard to to smoothen the lines. And there are ways to do that that are healthy, and there are ways to do that that are maybe less healthy. And, and we've had this three-decade-long experiment of trying to do it using a, a demographic dividend with the fall of the Iron Curtain, both in introducing new consumers and new sources of production into the world. So that had a deflationary effect, which uh, is abating. And, and B, through um, massive financial leverage and financial engineering to suppress volatility and, and goose the growth. So it, what I'm trying to say is we've had a seemingly salubrious period of global expansion that is perhaps anemic. And you can see that when you reduce it to the individual lives of people living, frankly, here, right here in the West, in the, in the so-called developed world, where real income hasn't really gone up. Um, you could say the quality of life hasn't gone down. 
but that's a backhanded compliment. So, I mean, we're looking at a sort of um, a world, you're saying, that is actually presented as being one of hyper growth and opportunity, but but the reality behind the curtain is that there's it's a zero-sum world. Uh, but before we get on to the sort of core criticisms that you have of, of some of the uh, more prominent Silicon Valley-based investment firms, I was wondering if we could just go through Mithril Capital's investing style um, in terms of the portfolio you have at the moment. Um, And your big star investment to date has been Oris Health. So tell us a little bit more about how Oris came to be. What what was it and the wider portfolio of, of companies that you are already invested in? Absolutely. I mean, Mithril is is now on fund two. So it's about a billion three across the two funds that were raised. And uh, Oris was a prominent investment in both in both funds, in the first and the second fund. Uh, it's, it's a great example of how we invest. I mean, Mithril is basically designed to be a heavily concentrated, unlevered growth investor um, without regard to geography or sector or stage. Um, so that agnosticism is really important because it's hard enough to find great investments. It's important not to constrain yourself. And equally, as a result, it's important to prepare one's mind to spot opportunity wherever that opportunity may arise. So we'd be equally comfortable investing in a company that is is doing surgical robotics, as Oris did, um, as we would be in a company uh, pioneering new forms of nuclear fusion, which we do have in the portfolio. It's a company called Helion Energy up in Redmond, Washington. Um, the common thread across all these companies is that they're each doing something that is unique, misunderstood, and where we judge it to be valuable and indeed durable. So if there is a, a, a pithy sentence to describe what we try to do, it would be maybe the durability doctrine. And what I mean by that is, you know, the classic growth model that worked for Silicon Valley for a long, long time, um, certainly true in the late 90s, and it's it's also been true in the last 10, 15 years, has been where you have a very, very significant growth on a, on a year-on-year basis, and when I say significant growth, I mean well over 100%. This is 200, 300% year-on-year growth. And you also have very negative margins attendant to that growth, margins of minus 20, 30, 40% in some cases. And this growth path is usually funded with um, venture capital. Venture capital used to be more expensive in the past than it is now. So there's a lot more capital in, in the post-QE ZERP um, world zero interest rates. We've seen more and more capital seeking returns by migrating up the risk curve. And the question is the quality of migration and the means of, you know, kind of the, the focus of their optimization for results. And and an easy way to think about um, doing this is to say, we should invest in growth. And what that us often lended itself to is is massive negative margin growing um, with an with, with the idea being you get to critical mass and then you flip over and take over an entire market. It's a nice idea. Um, occasionally it's worked and it, when it works, it's spectacular. So if you look at the the incumbent leaders in the industry, uh, the so-called FANG, um, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, etc., cetera, uh, these are companies that went through a very similar path and uh, they seem to have come out on the other side um, successfully. And, and, that's, and, and when you come out successfully, you have both strong margins and really healthy growth for a long time. Now, if that works really well when your input costs are all very, very low 
and 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 not trending up. And what are the input costs when you're doing a startup? They're basically labor um, is your number one input cost is team. And you have overheads, um, principally your office space. And that might sound like a minor thing, but actually it has been the most inflationary input of all in Silicon Valley. That's fascinating. Yeah, you could argue that, I mean, whether it's London or New York or Boston or Silicon Valley, and especially in Silicon Valley, there is this massively regressive landlord tax on startups. And and it's regressive because the smaller companies can afford to pay less than the larger ones. And then there's the cost of capital. So cost of labor, overheads, mainly the landlord stuff, and then the cost of capital. And if you look at those three things over the last... Um, you know, say since 2004, but especially since 2008, capital has been quite quite uh, freely available or more freely available than before. Um, that's starting to change a little bit, by the way, but it's been true for the most of the last decade. But the other two inputs, the people element and the uh, overhead element, have seen very significant inflation, uh, mainly because of lots of competition for talent. So this is a good thing for labor. I'm generally in support of higher real wages. I wish it were the case across the entire economy, not just in Silicon Valley, but it's certainly been the case in Silicon Valley. And and then and then the the the, the landlord stuff is is outrageous. Um, you know, it's basically like three to four x increases in rents in on a twelve year basis. Um, so these are things where, you know, you essentially get into a situation where this classic idea of the Hewlett Packard garage in Palo Alto mm. is is absurd mm -hmm. now. And that's tragic. Where can you do a garage startup? That's an interesting question. That's one way of looking at it. And the second way of looking at it is what kind of businesses can you build where you don't have to run this rat race, this this hamster wheel of trying to get to hyper growth ASAP. And those are businesses where generally you want higher margins and things that are, let's put it this way, things that are really hard to do, but really valuable once done, where you can um, you can get paid for the work that you've done with you know significant margins. And because of the complexity of what it is that you're doing, perhaps it takes longer to get it done, A, and B, it takes longer to educate the market and grow into market dominance. In terms of margin viability, I find that a fascinating uh, approach to investing because exactly like you say, we have been trained into thinking that, the, you know, it's all about hyper growth. It's all about getting the scale so that you can make those tiny little margins work for you, um, but and ultimately getting the payoff through owning the market. And, you know, I would say, you know, the, I, I listened to your critiques and I totally empathize with them, but I find it quite confusing because obviously one of your co-founders is Peter Thiel, who has in the past written books that sort of um, glamorize the idea of, of achieving monopoly and, and, and striving for this sort of market winner-takes-all strategy. So how do you square that with, with your co-founder? I think, I think it's entirely consistent. It's just a question of how you get to that outcome. I mean, I think Peter's points are very simply that that most people trick themselves through various means into thinking that they have a competitive business when they don't. Uh, one example is let's go after the you know really big markets. So it's a market size fallacy. And he makes the point that the reality is large markets attract lots of competition. So your profits essentially get competed away. Uh, so if you're an entrepreneur, I mean, the thing I've noted is that it's as difficult to start a laundromat as it is to start Google. And it sounds absurd when you say it, you know, um, when you say it aloud, but existentially, 
that it feels just as crazy. It's the same sleepless nights. It's the same question of taking on loans and fundraising and worrying about life issues. I mean, and, and, and your entire budget for complexity and risk is taken up with this one thing. And God forbid a family member falls sick or something else happens. I mean, existentially, in terms of an entrepreneur's daily life, it's, it's just as hard. So now the question is, um, what's the return on your effort? And how do you think about prioritizing what you should be working on? And this is not to say that everyone needs to go out and build Google, right? It's simply to say when you're making these choices, think about what kind of pressures you're going to subject yourself to on the business front. And the best way to compete perhaps is not to compete, is to have, um, is to find something that is blue ocean. Um, but the reality is most of the blue oceans are not oceans because if it were an ocean, everyone knows about it. It's big. They want to be there. So they actually tend to be rivers. They tend to be streams. They tend to be ponds. They tend to be these limited markets. It's much more interesting to find a unique approach that delivers an order of magnitude better product to a billion dollar global category, which is tiny, than it, and, and, and then to go and get enough traction to take, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% of that category over a five-year period. Uh, plant your flag have good margins and then expand into adjacent spaces from a position of strength rather than to go after a massive market with negative margins and try and compete while telling yourself stories about how unique you are. <laughs> um, my, you know, my fear is that many, many people do the latter and, and they all go to the same parties and, and, and they're all founders. And there's a sense of martyrdom that comes with that entire effort, right? You're trying to do something different in the world. And, and you feel like everyone's against you and you valorize these, these insane challenges. Now, this is not to minimize the challenges. All I'm saying is try and improve the quality of challenge. You know, there's this other thing in Silicon Valley. It's like failure's good. Actually, failure sucks, <laughs> right? Who wants to fail? Nobody wants to fail. Now, there's a big difference between failure in the sense of like valorizing failure and accepting high quality mistakes. I mean, I, I know it sounds like it's a semantic thing. But it isn't. It's actually if you have a strong view on the world and you have a good plan and you go and execute and you find that one or two elements of your plan were wrong and it wallops you and you say, OK, fine, let me iterate and get to a better plan. That is a totally different way of thinking about the, the point that is worth emphasizing is that the many cultures, um, you know, both social cultures and commercial cultures that would kill you for making that first mistake. That's bad. That, you know, you should have a culture that allows for some of those mistakes to happen. But that's very different than celebrating failure um, and kind of going through this cargo cult idea of entrepreneurship. I'm glad you mentioned the failure thing, because I think as an outsider, it's really frustrating to hear all these sort of, you know, how would I describe them diplomatically, you know, young guys going around saying that, you know, that failure is a, is a good thing, and the more they fail, blah, 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 because from the outside, you're like, yes, okay, I appreciate there's a learning curve. But there's also this amazing thing called knowledge, you know, <laughs> archival knowledge that you can learn from your predecessors. And I think one of the frustrations on the outside is that there is this very brash approach, um, which disrespects history, disrespects the learning that has happened in the past. And it uh, demands iteration that is potentially a waste of capital because we've had that iteration before. I completely agree. I mean, I think that this goes back to our question about the presence or the absence of growth in the world and what's going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's socially... I think we live in an age of extreme procrastination. If you look across the political landscape, 
Um, and I think politics are a dangerous subject, and I think we we overdo politics. But it's it's an interesting reflection of society's thinking as to what messages people like to hear. There's no one um, that I can think of in living memory, at least as far as I've been around, 40 years or so, that has run on a platform of deferred consumption. But there's lots of ways in which we discuss deferred production. What I mean by deferred production, it's like, okay, do you want clean power um, for billions of people now? Yes, we do. That would be fantastic. Okay, well, clearly we should try and develop some of these alternative sources of power like solar and wind, and we are. But equally, we should be building lots of very advanced nuclear facilities. And I don't mean, you know, things that look like the old ones from the Cold War, um, which are really optimized by military programs. I mean, an entirely new generation of clean nuclear power technology that's inherently safe. And there are people who would argue that's an absurd idea. Such a thing doesn't exist. That's a debate worth having. But we don't even have that debate. They're not, you know, you know, leaders in society jumping up and down, canvassing to build, you know, hundreds of these things, and solve the production problem for power. Um, there are annual discussions across the world about infrastructure programs. The fact that we're having discussions about infrastructure programs is itself a failure. Infrastructure should just be normal. I mean, it should be something that we do all the time. It shouldn't be a program. Um, and so it's it's kind of this failure mode discussion that we're saying. Why don't we do a trillion dollar infrastructure program in the US and so on and so forth? This feeds into your point that really we're living in a bit of a mirage and it, it, what we perceive as highly valuable isn't necessarily so. These companies that have um, focused on hyper growth at any cost, um, I would argue a lot of that sort of strategy is, is more akin to sort of M&A, like you're, the negative margin is, is, is just the price you're paying to acquire market share without necessarily applying any innovation. Um, because if there was real innovation, you would hopefully deliver some sort of positive um, profits. Um, I think you're touching upon an important point there. What you're really saying is that, you know, this type of um, like basically um, borrowing a billion dollars to deploy scooters at very low cost across major cities um, that are essentially made by Nine Point uh, or Segway in, in, in Asia. That's essentially financial engineering. It's as mm -hmm. much a financial engineering play as leverage buyouts. Um, mm -hmm. And, and th I think that's a very important point. Now, what's at issue is that this is conflated as tech with something like Aorus, where you have the founder, Fred Mole, who is essentially the pioneer of robotic surgery as we know it um, from the 70s and the 80s, um, who is who spent a decade basically building this incredible non-invasive surgical platform where for the next four or five billion people who will not have highly qualified surgeons available to work on them because we simply don't produce enough, you have the combination of well-qualified medical people with fantastic robots that can deliver really high-quality outcomes. That's really hard to do. And it's perhaps even harder than going to Mars. Uh, but it needs to be done, and it needs to be funded. And I think of risk capital. Risk capital is basically stored energy. Somebody's gone and done work and and created that capital and stored it, and is willing to take you know high risk for relatively high returns hopefully over a longer time horizon than the typical stock market investor. If there's someone willing to do that and that unit of capital exists, that thing is super valuable. You've got to use it to do something that will have durable impact on society. So the question is, is the durable impact, you know, a leveraged 
a purchase of scooters? Or is the durable impact helping Dr. Mo basically uh, make minimally invasive surgery next generation real for billions of people? And there's a place for both, but I just want to be clear about how we discuss one versus the other. Maybe one is tech and the other isn't. I, I would agree with your assessment that a lot of this um, modern day hypergrowth unicorn stuff is financial engineering. I, I mean, this is a good point to bring up Uber because obviously Uber has IPO'd this week. It's gone from a valuation of 120 billion in October last year to, you know, I don't want to predict, but you know, we're in we're in the high 60s, low 70s, right? That's that's halved. In, since October. And anything can happen because uh, we were discussing previously that Facebook also didn't have a good start in, in terms of its IPO history. But there does seem to be something different this time around. It seems like maybe the market has become a little bit more wary of these models and there's a bit of hypergrowth fatigue. Well, you could argue that the market hasn't actually seen hypergrowth in the, the public markets haven't. And that's an interesting point, right? I mean, most of this growth has happened in the private markets. So, so I think the public market is tasting these companies for the first time in a decade. I mean, the, or not a decade, but maybe six or seven years, because the last time it happened was the Facebook IPO and, and some of the, the follow-ons from the Facebook IPO. So the question on, I think your question is about, you know, the performance of Uber since the IPO and what does it say about the market? I think it's, frankly, it's too early to tell. I think it'd be dangerous to draw conclusions, but I think we can have hypotheses. There are basically three scenarios here. Scenario number one is the market's basically saying, wait, we've been drunk a little too long across the board. Maybe the economy is more anemic than we thought. Maybe the non-investment in growth is real. And these dividends and share buybacks and massive profitability that we've seen over the last decade in the Fortune 500 is not sustainable, either financially or demographically, meaning in terms of financial engineering or demographics. And, and perhaps that party needs to come to an end, um, or at least we need to start reflecting the fact that it might come to an end. And Uber is just one data point in that broader shift. So that's one idea. Uh, the second idea is very simply that there's something wrong you know, with Uber, and, and maybe the company just doesn't work. It doesn't really, it will never be profitable, so it doesn't matter. And so it's just this huge company that's grown quite a lot, but maybe it'll never be profitable. And the market is expressing an opinion on future nonprofits uh, or future nonprofit status. So that's hypothesis two. And then hypothesis three is the Facebook hypothesis, where Uber is just fundamentally misunderstood. So this would be the kind of the Uber view of things. The Uber view would be you have no idea what's really going on at Uber. We've been quietly building for the last 10 years, since 2009. And uh, we'll show you when we see self-driving cars all over the place with massive uh, margins because we own the network and and the network economics are going to be amazing. And what happened in Facebook, as you recall, was the stock was traded down because people, the market kind of said, these people haven't figured out mobile internet. It's a desktop solution. It's over. And Uber would argue that, um, you know, uh, evaluating the current network is like evaluating Facebook on the desktop, that the future iteration of Uber is something totally different. And Facebook was in fact working on mobile and had been for a while. They just didn't talk about it. And by 2014, just two years after the IPO, they were the leader on the mobile internet. So the first argument is macro downshift. The second argument is basically uh, Uber negative micro. And the third argument is, you know, crypto positive for Uber. 
uh, at the micro level. It's just that nobody knows yet. All I'm trying to say is we don't have enough data to know what happened last week, whether it was scenario one, two or three. But would you say that maybe something is different this time around? You know, if you read uh, Matt Levine at Bloomberg, he might argue that private markets have kind of become the public markets anyway, and the public markets have become the private markets or whatever he says. But the point being that that as a private company, it was so widely held, but by a very specific set of insiders, that that, that made the, the IPO environment very different to say what Facebook experienced back then. I think they're very similar in some ways and quite different in some ways. So they're similar in the sense that the IPO market hasn't changed. Um, the IPO market, I think, changed around the 2000 crash when the market basically became wary of growth stories, especially technology growth stories. So in a sense, the entire IPO market expressed a Warren Buffett type view of tech. It's like, we don't really trust it anymore. And you could tell that when Google actually went public, I think it was in 2004, when it it became clear that it was not the harbinger of IPOs to come. In fact, I mean, if you read the press around the time when Google went public, and I think Baidu went public a year afterwards, it was this idea that the IPO window, this mythical IPO, IPO window that everybody's hoping for has opened. So there was a, uh, a paroxysm of kind of news articles being written around that. The point was, it showed how difficult it would be to go public. That's what Google did. It showed that you had to utterly dominate an entire segment of the internet or an entire sector of the tech industry for the public market to have confidence in in the stock and, and to accept it, that anything less wouldn't do well. And so it really set a very high bar for companies to go public. And I would argue that that led to a lot of the longer-term private investing mentality that you had to incubate for anywhere from five to 12 years privately, get to market dominance or at least critical mass before the public markets would accept you. I don't think that that's changed. Famously, of course, given we're talking about Facebook, this week we saw the co-founder of Facebook, Chris Hughes, come out and sort of criticize the monopoly power that Facebook has achieved and the related power that Mark Zuckerberg has received as a result of that monopoly status. Do you think those are fair criticisms? Would you like to see some antitrust? Uh, I mean, how does that square the un- antitrust risk in the in the hypergrowth model in your perspective? Like, because perhaps the other thing is that because we've experienced the Facebook thing, um, people are very wary of new entities coming in and dominating markets to the same degree. Yeah. So I think it's unhealthy to have government-supported monopolies or monopolies that are built in very unfair ways that are impossible to dislodge. So, and, and when you read the news analysis of these companies, it's always like maybe the monopoly statutes are wrong, the antitrust statutes are wrong, because in the U.S. at least, it's entirely predicated on benefit or harm to the consumer determined by price signal. And from a price signal point of view, well, if everything is free, then... Um, what's there to argue about. And and so there's that whole debate that's going on on that basis. The interesting debate to me is, are these companies definitively unmovable, permanent monopolies? 
And I think the answer is absolutely not. They're absolutely immovable. They're absolutely defeatable. And, and I think that um, it's a failure in, in time horizon more than anything else. Um, so as I alluded to earlier, I think that the world works in, in very, um, ironically, the more digital we get, the more we have to be conscious of the analog reality of wave functions. And, and there, is a, there is a great risk to freezing these waves at a local minimum or a local maximum. And I think we're having this discussion today in May 2019 um, at a time when you're at a local maximum, you know, regarding the, the internet giants of the early 21st century, um, meaning the first two decades of the 21st century. So we're talking about the greatest hits of the of the 2010s, you know, um, or the 2005 um, batch, um, and and the question is, in 2030, are we going to be talking about the same companies? Um, I mean, you're already seeing shifts. Because you're sorry to interrupt, but I, I feel like what you're trying to say is that there are market solutions to these problems without antitrust uh, intervention, and that the market is kind of a reflection of we, we kind of talked about it off air before but i really like the way you put it that it's a reflection of our human nature in that the social economic structure is feudal at the moment and these these um, big sort of tech behemoths are, are emerging as such simply because they're a reflection of our social um fabric i completely more than agree anything else. let me give you a quick analogy well, that's what you told me <laughs> so, yeah. no, I, I completely agree with this i think we yeah. live in a feudal age and it's it's dangerous and I think um, in a feudal age, you're supposed to basically give up your agency to the feudal lord. And you don't have too much control over your life and you don't worry about things. People take care of things for you. Like you don't have to worry about anything. Um, and, and it has consequences. Um, and we saw it in banking. I mean, banking has been feudal for a long time, in my view. Um, in 2008, you saw the uh, apotheosis of the feudal era in banking. And you saw the response to it, which was TBTF. And, and so TBTF essentially established the permanence of the feudal, um, of the feudatories in, in banking. It didn't break them up. Um, it didn't reduce their power. Um, they're just as powerful. And, and now they're completely uh, protected. Um, so my, my fear is that the exact same thing, it, it's, it's, it's really, really difficult to build a bank that can, you know, compete away the profits of a JP Morgan or a Citibank or a Goldman Sachs, um, I would argue that they became even more powerful after 2008. Um, and the internet is in danger of moving in a similar direction, not because the people running Google and Facebook and Amazon planned it that way. They're just doing what they do, which is value maximizing their own enterprise value, you know, and doing what they do. Uh, but it's the response to it that I fear even more, because I think the, the market response is to try and kill them as businesses and build something better. And I think that's happening. People are trying. The regulatory response will be, you know, we think that you're so powerful that we need to establish a concordat with you. You know, you're, you're this hugely powerful sovereign, so we're going to make a treaty. And we're going to establish your power in law and we're going to regulate it. That is acknowledging a permanence of power that is dangerous. Um, you know, that's when in fact it's in flux. Uh, and it and removes the flux with state consent. Now you have a real oligopoly, and that's what I worry about. And then even in the business model, there is an analogy in the sense that in banking versus, say, using a trust company, if you have your money in a bank, you're essentially depositing your money into a bank. It gets levered up, you know, with central bank support and um, and deployed into the broader economy. The 
fruits of that leverage um, accrue to the shareholders of the bank, not the depositor. The faults associated with that leverage uh, accrue to the depositor, um, perhaps even more than to the shareholders, despite FDIC protection. And 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 you, you're starting to see a very similar narrative emerge around these internet companies, where it's like you deposit all your personal information with the internet giants, and now they're going to be friends with, you know, if you look at GDPR, GDPR is a deeply regressive tax. It's, it's, it makes it very hard for a new French competitor to Google to emerge. It actually entrenches Google in France. And I think that would be shocking to people in France to hear, but it's true. And, and because Google is extremely sophisticated, Facebook is extremely sophisticated, they're, they're waiting for this thing. They've helped shape it and they, they will be extremely compliant absolutely compliant. It's going to be super hard for some new person to be asked compliant with GDPR or these new copyright rules. So in a sense, the, the movement to entrench the incumbents into an oligopoly that is state-sponsored has already begun. And you could argue that it's the new elite consensus. And that's, I mean, I've that, heard that scares me. made with, with um, licensing in general, that licensing is, is essentially a, a mechanism by which the state formalizes oligopoly, that it kind of, you know, it, it's like you said, it's, it's a treaty, it's a deal done with the incumbents. And, um, and the idea is, well, we'll license new entrants, but we basically control it and we can make it really difficult or easy. Um, and that sort of replaces the more, um, the predecessor would have been the guild system, a self-regulating body, which unfortunately was destroyed by the licensing. You've seen this phenomenon across the board. In America, in the early 20th century, you had these very large friendship societies. And some progressives see the friendship societies as um, powerful mechanisms to mobilize social capital. And, um, you know, in situations where, uh, you know, um, capital mobility was hard to achieve. And so capital formation was hard. So you had these friendship societies and mutuals and cooperatives and things like that that came up. Uh, but they they ultimately were destroyed by, you know, um, um, a greater understanding by commercial incumbents of how to work with the state to create these regulations that were always, um, you know, discussed in terms of consumer safety and protection of competition. And I mean, the, the doublespeak is beautiful, but the outcome is oligopoly and, and less choice. Um, and so we saw that with medicine in the early 20th century in hospitals. We saw that with airlines for a long time with price regulation. And then that finally went away and you've had a lot more competition since. And then we now see it in banking. That's now very real. And it's, it's about to become real on the internet. And that's even more dangerous. We've never had this kind of media oligopoly before that has been state blessed. Um, and it, and that, that really worries me. And, and the reason it worries me is modern organizations reflect modern society. We live in a world of helicopter parenting. It's a bureaucratic society. It, it, it valorizes bureaucracy, um, mimetic values, like I copy you because you know, you're doing something cool on a reality TV show. Um, it's, it's fundamentally risk avoiding. Um, and it's fixated on success and virtue signaling as opposed to actually building something new because that's hard and dangerous and things could go wrong in ways that are very uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And so in preferring safety to progress, you're forced to discuss safety as progress. And there are all of these mechanisms by which we do that, very sophisticated mechanisms. And so the matrix comes to mind, of course. Um, and, and we're all complicit in building that beautiful matrix and taking our daily dose of blue pills.
a good way to enter into this idea is that obviously Uber has not done very well so far. But as we said before, this is early days. We don't know what's going to happen. But a lot of people say, you know, the context is the market. The market is not doing very well at the moment. And this is currently being blamed on the failure of um, trade negotiations with China. You have a unique view on what um, the kind of current context of free trade in our global environment is anyway. I did want to get your take on on this current. (laughs) I'm chuckling because free trade would be a lovely idea if we actually tried it. My point is we haven't. Um, I think people, I mean, you know, in the last election, there was this whole discussion of people in the American Midwest, the, the manufacturing heart of the country, um, being quite angry with the the pro free trade people, and they were portrayed as these um, you know anti globalization villagers who didn't who were not cosmopolitan, sophisticated, understand how wonderful free trade was. Well, that's nonsense. The reality is they understood all too well. Um, I'm a votary of actual free trade. Um, what we've had is a regime of managed tariffs for you know since GATT. Um, and it's been since World War II. I mean, it's just the way in which the world's operated. So, and and so you you can't just take a Chevrolet and just waltz into Japan and sell it tax free. It just doesn't happen. Um, there are lots of rules and regulations. There's lots of crypto tariffs, everything from environmental regulations to inspection regimes and safety regs and so on and so forth. And everybody knows this. So it goes back to the question of uh, transparency in public discourse. Let's not have a discussion about free trade, please. Let's, let's, or let's have a real discussion about free trade. It's got to be one or the other. If it's a real discussion about free trade, it means no tariffs. It means actual free federated markets. Uh, and if we're having a discussion about managed trade, then we're saying it's actually zero sum at some level. Because the idea of free trade, which is very positive and um, maybe even easy to sell to people, is that it, it has this concept of fairness. It's like, hey, we're going to have a, a level playing field. And the markets are open to you and to you and to you, whether you're a laborer in Mexico or a manufacturer in Wisconsin. Um, you know, you can both compete on equal terms in the global marketplace. That's interesting and maybe even worth trying. Um, but my point is it's never been tried because of this preference for safety. So we've put very strict guardrails, very, very managed trade, and that is functionally zero sum. As soon as something becomes zero sum, it's political. And and I think we live in an age where everything is hyper political because we've made things so zero sum. And 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 culturally, it makes sense because we're in a culture of instant consumption. This is my earlier point in the in the podcast about nobody championing deferred consumption, because in order to invest, really invest, you have to save and defer consumption and put that capital to work and taking real risk and building new things. So so you combine that reality of instant consumption and, and media culture, where valorization comes from social approval, and you combine it with, you know, the zero-sum thinking around things like trade and uh, development. Um, what a surprise <laughs> that we're in the situation we're in. Yeah, I think you put it very well. Um, and deferred consumption to me, you know, is, is another way of saying sacrifice. Uh, Correct. It's just not cool anymore, sacrifice. You can't say it. No, because it's all about me, 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 now, 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 um, as opposed to the idea of cultivating something over time because of a personal sacrifice to begin with. Um, so I personally, I, I understand this, but it's a hugely controversial 
point that you're making. I think the other thing that is often overlooked is that WTO is a club, but um, and China, for example, may have uh, worked very hard to join that club, but it hasn't necessarily abided by the rules itself. So I, I think the, the sort of champions of Trump have a point on that. And in the context of the Brexit debate, I think when people talk about WTO rules, oh, we're just going to defer to WTO rules. And then the counter argument is, oh, well, there is no such thing. You still have to do bilateral agreements. And I think that's the irony, isn't it? Correct. I think, I mean, you don't have to be pro-Trump to under, to understand that something is wrong in Elysium. And that's what the, the votaries of Brexit are saying. I mean, it's not necessarily the public champions, but really the people who are privately supporting it. The people who don't speak up in the polls, but actually go out and vote a certain way. What they're expressing is, I think, um, and, the, I, I, you know, in, in anecdotal conversations across the UK in my travels, um, at the human level, I mean, it's always been attributed, you know, there are these caricatures, these people are xenophobic, these people are, you know, there's all these things. And then you actually go and meet the so-called xenophobes. And there's a lot of fear. And at the human level, they're just very normal, lovely people. And so as soon as you cut through the fear, they become quite fantastic to spend time with. And you say, okay, can you please walk through the structure of your fears? And, and there's a long list and it'll take longer than we have time for. But the point is, people are not actually addressing those fears. People are not even acknowledging them in the political arena. Instead, their fears have been weaponized either by one side that says, okay, we're going to leave and this is how it's going to go, or the other side that says everything's fine. You know, Europe is this wonderful thing and, and these multilateral organizations are extremely fair and lovely um, and so on and so forth. And and the people, you know, that are um, uh, being painted as these caricatures that, you know, country bumpkins and so on, that's just nonsense. They know that 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 they're being lied to. And they're saying, please, I, I, we want to force a real discussion. Now, I mean, there, there was a recent article, um, I think it was last week, um, on Drudge that said, Elizabeth Warren is doing well in constituencies that voted for Trump the last time. Now, I don't know if this is a sustained phenomenon or what it means for her campaign. That's not the issue. The issue is that one data point simply says it's not about Trump or Warren. It, it's about having a real discussion about the status quo. You can't just pull wool over people's eyes anymore. They really want to talk about things and they have the capacity to. It's important not to weaponize their fear and their hope into these easy pablum, you know, type platforms. AJ, thank you so much and good luck with the, the future of finding um, unlevered growth potential opportunities. Thank you, indeed. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and Amy Keane from the Financial Times. Please email us on alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all. 